0: welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Abraham Newman, who's a professor at the Edmund Wall School of Foreign Service and Department of Government at Georgetown University. Welcome to the podcast, Abraham. Thanks, Lev. So today we're going to be talking about a book that you co-authored with Henry Farrell, um, an exciting book, which is called Underground Empire. Uh, it, It just came out in September. And um if we could start the interview by you just in the broadest possible terms telling me what your argument is.
1: Sure. So um I think that there's like a there's a standard story about how global politics works in a world where there are kind of global economic networks. And it was a story that, you know, basically as we increase trade and we exchange with other people, it was gonna de-center and de- um, you know, decentralized power. There was this book Thomas Friedman had, "The World is Flat," and you know, firms were going to be in control, governments were going to be neutered, and there was just going to be more uh, peace and prosperity because of it. And this, the, you know, the central argument of our book is that many of those economic networks are very centralized. So if you think about your phone, you know, it's made basically by one or two companies, Apple or Google. It has a chip that's made by one or two companies, TSMC or Samsung, and if you do a financial transaction on that phone, it's going to go through a, uh, just a handful of banks. And so these global networks are not decentralized, they're centralized, and governments have woken up to this, in particular the U.S. government, and that they're using this structure of the global economy uh, to fight their battles and to uh, get at their adversaries.
0: All right, that's very clear. I want to come back to the title. Um Underground Empire. I'm, I'm interested in the empire part of it to start. When the, the, the I guess the challenge for me when I'm teaching as students about empire is about the United States as empire is um, one. There seems to be I guess a question over whether the United States really is an empire. I, I think generally, man, you could tell me if I'm wrong. We tend to think of ourselves not as an empire but as a republic, and, and there seems to be tension between those two ideas. But you know, maybe it starts as early as you know, Jefferson talks about we have our ideals but we also have our tastes and those tastes involved going to war and expansion and then you have some people arguing you know it's like like uh, Adam II's that we start being a real empire after after world war 1 or, or 1916 other people say it's after second world war how do we recognize an empire how do we recognize that the US is an empire and then if we are indeed an empire when do you sort of start when does it start to become an empire
1: so you know, in in our book, the way we're thinking about this word is really about how does the United States get its power, and the kind of the standard story is that it's a country and it's a nation, and we get our power from the nation, and that's really how we project our power in the world. And when we use this word "empire," what we want to focus on is how there is really a center. And then there is an expanse or an like a periphery that extends outside of that, you know, just our ger- our ge- geographic area. And so we're thinking about that power comes from these networks. There are these global networks that, that reach really the world, you know, whether you're in Australia or Albania or Argentina, you're connected through um, these, these pipes. Some are physical, some are digital. That then pull back information and resources to the United States, and so that's kind of how we're when we use that word empire is just to to break down the idea that it's just you know one that countries are independent from each other and they're interacting in the world, but they're really connected, and that those connections uh, generate power for the United States. And in in terms of when we locate the beginning of this type of Empire mm-hmm. is um is really 9 11 mm-hmm. and after the attacks um happen on the World Trade Center it's a moment where uh, you know agencies across the United States government are facing new and wicked problems they don't really know what to do and they're scrambling to figure that out and they they stumble across these you know what they they figure out these maps of this Empire and this network and they start to use it. And I think it's a, a story not of some like orchestrated plan that they've had mm-hmm. all along, but one mm-hmm. of, um, you know, actors discovering on the fly, and then incrementally building up these resources as uh, as they find one kind of economic network after next that they can use.
0: Okay, so it's sort of an unintentional empire. Um, you know, I remember reading Thomas Friedman in college, I, I think it was I think actually it was the Lexus and the olive tree where, you know, so he lays out this, this kind of utopia, um, a a free trade utopia where, you know, I think you described it well, where the government sort of, if they don't wither away, at least they, they step back. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering what, you know, what government, like did Bill Clinton believe this stuff what government would actually (laughs) want to disappear or step back and, and allow markets to just do their thing and, and for the governments themselves, the institutions themselves to become less powerful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there was like a, a little bit of you know neoliberal amnesia. It was like, well, we'll just get all, we'll just get rich off this, and that'll mm-hmm. be great. Um, But I think you know Henry and I were political scientists, and so we're always going to come back to that. There's power in markets. You know, like markets are not just about efficiency; they're not just about Uh, companies trying to sell things, they're also creating um, relationships and hierarchies between people and companies. You know, it's like everybody, there's this myth that companies want competition. Mm -hmm. What companies want is to be a bloated monopolist. You know, it's like they want the rent, they want the extra sauce that they can squeeze out of the market. And if you think about Amazon or Apple or JP Morgan, they're not seeking competition, they're seeking dominance. And I think if you talk to really anybody in the developing world, you know, the global south, they would, you know, there was, of course, markets are about power. But I think that the United States in particular uh, was, was really handing over the reins to private actors, mostly for economic reasons. Um, and then after 9-11, they realize what many people have known for, you know, for generations, that, that these markets, they, wield, they can be wielded for power. Uh, and that's, I think, what now the world is seeing today.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you think this is analogous to sort of the East India Company going in to, to the Indian Ocean trade, establishing networks, and then the British Empire following in their path? It's sort of like you use corporations to lay the groundwork and then the state takes over?
1: Well, I so, I mean, we talk about in the book that that many empires are built first on the back of merchants and so companies go out and they create these relationships in our in our story the us is not planning to rule you know like the, the british empire had a different vision which was mm-hmm. create dependence and then it would actually rule these places what what the us is is doing is it's using these private actor networks for state power so that it can put pressure on countries like China or Russia or Iran and it really it needs those private actors to be in the lead Do you know i mean if, if 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 it was just the us government doing it yeah. then people would would not accept it and they would push back but people want apple phones they want um you know the the efficiency of using the dollar as a as a means of exchange and so the us kind of walks this tightrope of um, having these firms that are useful and not wanting to get rid of them because if it if it really supplants them, then people will just reject. I think that kind of power, that direct mm-hmm. empire. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, I think the way you describe the the underground empire in the book is there's two metaphors that stand out. One is you, know, you sort of borrow, I think, you know, and you talk about it, um, Al Gore's superhighway uh, idea. But then there's also this idea of there's all this plumbing. There are these there are these yeah. pipes. Maybe you could talk a little bit about um what that pump plumbing you know looks like and, and how it functions.
1: Sure. It's so I mean this is really the underground part of the underground empire, is that there are behind the global economy, or just capitalism, there are all these infrastructures that are necessary to make those things work. So, if you think about, oh, there's the cloud, everybody's like, oh, that's cloud. It sounds very amorphous. But actually, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: it's, it's a set of buildings not that far from where I live in Ashburn, Virginia, where there are, are just, you take the Empire State Building and you just put it on its side multiple times, mm. rows and rows of these buildings. And that is where the cloud lives. It's the Amazon Web Services kind of headquarters. And those, those structures, whether it's that or, the way that uh, banks at, in the global system they use this this organization called SWIFT. It's a it's in Belgium and it's kind of like a encrypted post office for banks. And whenever you make a transaction, SWIFT says, "Hey, Bank One, they they made this transaction." Bank Two, all the information about the global financial system routes through this one place. And so, whether it's finance or data. Same thing with production. How like we make semiconductors? They route through these choke points, these central places in the global economy, and that those infrastructures, for a long time, were just ignored as arcane, technical, boring. Um, and one of you know our main argument is that that's where the power sits or is in these infrastructures, these this plumbing.
0: And maybe you could talk a little bit more about about Swift and part of the book that I was maybe most interested in was. How the U.S. weaponizes the dollar, and you talk about this very complex transaction that happens um, with the dollar. So maybe
1: you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So there, there are these basically. If you're going to trade in the international system, you're going to touch on what's called the dollar clearing system, and it's a really it's very it sounds complex, but it's basically the idea of a German bank. Is doing a transaction between, let's say, Japan and Iran, that German bank, instead of using the currencies of Japan and Iran and Germany, is going to use dollars to do all of those things. So it's going to invoice in dollars, but it needs actually dollars to do that. And those dollars sit in something that are called correspondent banks, and they have relationships with, let's say, that German bank, the Deutsche Bank. And so Deutsche Bank does that transaction between Japan and Iran, and the money is actually shifted in that bank's accounts in US banks, these correspondent banks. And so it's like these tables in these US banks, and they kind of shift over the money for everybody else. Well, that means the US, it has, the US government, it has jurisdiction over almost any financial transaction in the world because so much of it happens is cleared in US dollars. And then that means that it comes back to those correspondent banks in US who are shifting over that money in their tables. And so whether you're a German bank or a Japanese bank, you're very dependent on that system. And that's where the US has started to say, okay, well, if, if you do trades with Iran, or you do something with North Korea, you're not going to have access to those banks. Mm-hmm.
0: So we effectively cut Iran out of the international finance system. Exactly. And I, and I think we did that you can tell me for right we did that with Russia last year, no?
1: Yes. So for all these things it's um it's not always totally on or totally off. Okay. So you know like in the uh in the Iran case there were like several banks that were targeted or the same thing with the Russia case. Uh several banks were targeted, but ultimately uh in the Iran case or sorry, in the Russia case, we went even further. Uh, where the US and European uh, central banks together basically said the Russian central bank, it's money that was denominated in dollars or euros, that those could no longer be exchanged. And so it basically evaporated. It was like 300, uh, I'm going to get the, was it, I think it was 300 uh, billion uh, worth of Russian central bank reserves.
0: Wow, I'm mean, so I mean I know that Russia, you know, they they sell oil and gas. And I guess Iran does too. But how how can you survive as a country if you've been cut out of the, the financial system? What do you do?
1: So, and that's it's really interesting to see in the debate about the Russia sanctions right now because on the one hand, uh, some people would say, well Russia's still selling stuff, so isn't that proof that these tools aren't working? Um, but what, what the US and the Europeans have done is basically said Russia is allowed to sell its oil, but at a price that is lower than the kind of the, the global market for that gas. And so as a result of that, then Russia makes less money than they would if they were selling at the top dollar. And countries like China or India, they have an incentive to go along with that because they get cheap gas. And so it's kind of a system that's built to both wean the world off of Russia, but not to shock the world uh, in a way that would cut off Russia completely from the global market and then cause an oil crisis in the world.
0: So I know that you have people like Lula down in Brazil who hinting at this idea that you know, maybe it'd be good if we start to trade in a different currency. Maybe we moved away from the dollar a little bit. Why is that so hard to do? Is that just because, as you were talking about before, there's this network effect, and once people use the dollar, they tend to use the dollar?
1: Yeah. So um, I think that there's a lot of talk. Like if the US overuses its sanctions, will that undermine the US dollar in its central position in the world? And I think that it's it's very unlikely. Uh, because the alternatives, the substitutes for the U.S. dollar, are basically kind of shooting themselves in the foot. So, if you think about what's what's the alter- what else could you do except for the dollar? Mm-hmm. Your your main choices are the euro or the yuan. And if you look at the euro, it's gone through a set of traumas over the last several decades that really undermine kind of the vibrance of European markets. So there was the sovereign debt crisis that happened. In 2007, 2008, 2009. And then there was Brexit, um, which, even though the UK didn't use the euro, it really undermined the economic strength of the euro zone. And so those kinds of things, they weren't because those problems happened because of domestic problems in Europe. They weren't about like Europe wants to be a challenger to the Mm -hmm. dollar or not. Um, But ultimately, then the euro becomes this weaker substitute. And if you look at the yuan, the Chinese currency, you know, it basically is—it's not convertible in the way that the U.S. dollar is. It's it, the Chinese government still has capital controls, which means that money cannot easily leave China. The government still regulates how it comes in and out, and the two—the the zero COVID policy on Hong Kong, as well as the um, the democracy crackdowns—they've really hurt. China's largest international financial hub as a global player. And once again, that wasn't because they were trying to compete with the dollar yes or no. They had domestic problems that the government felt like it needed to uh deal with. And as a result, they, you know, really undermined the international position of China's financial markets.
0: Yeah. So in your book, you you quote um Obama's, I think you quote Obama's Treasury Secretary. So we're saying, let's let's be careful here, because if we're too aggressive. People may may start to move away from from this system that we've built, but you don't you don't think that's at least at this point a real a real fear.
1: So what Henry and I what we do think is a real fear is less that the dollar will be replaced as a reserve currency, but something that so that's uh, former Secretary Lou. One of the things he talks about is that you could start to see more and more dark spaces in the global economy that are not regulated by any really by the US or other people and that countries like China or Russia or even Indonesia that they'll start to obscure their trade in a way in order to maintain it that then could create really like bad actors to do things that we don't want and um there was an interesting Janet Yellen gave a speech recently where she said look what the Russia sanctions are doing is it's making it more expensive for russia to trade this stuff that it has and so it's increasing the cost to russia but the way that they're doing it is they're using like shell companies and offshore financing and these different means that will make it harder for people to regulate that type of trade and so our concern is like you'll create kind of these illicit markets that uh you know bad actors could take advantage of
0: you know as i was reading your book um I, I guess I was reminded of all the revelations that that Snowden, that he gave us. And you know, one of the things I guess I did, didn't realize is that the government could listen to anybody's calls. And then I, I think you say that they can sort of store them and review them anytime that they want to. Um, did, as you were doing the research for this book, did, did it, I guess, did it radicalize you in any way? And, and how do you feel about, about Snowden at this point?
1: So I've been studying uh, privacy for about 20 years, data privacy. And that's actually, uh, you know, Henry and I wrote a different book before this book that was really about that, about the Snowden revelations. And oh, I didn't he, know that. Oh, yeah. yeah Sorry. That's okay. But how it transformed um, US European privacy debates. And, and one of the things I think that We've been thinking about these for a long time. And so I just integrate that into my knowledge of like this, you know, the Snowden revelations happen. We know these things about the world. Um, but so many people are surprised when they read that chapter uh, because I think we we kind of have a little bit of amnesia about what was released, what mm-hmm. the US government was doing after 9-11. Uh, and it is shocking, you know, the, the type of surveillance that was being conducted. Um, I do want to just like you know, uh, quell the fears of the conspiracy theorists, you know, what the US government was doing was really targeting foreign citizens data. uh, And that's the kind of when the the rewind program that that's what they were trying to to get at. And they were not uh, targeting US citizens. Um, And the other thing that is important is that after Snowden happened, there were a series of investigations. There was new rules that were put on the NSA about how it could collect data. And I I don't want people to think that we don't live in a... We still, the United States, its biggest advantage over a country like China is that we have the rule of law, we have courts, we have legal processes that can then follow up. We have an independent media that can expose the stuff You know that Snowden could use to get this information out in the open. So... Mm-hmm. You know it is a very scary part of U.S history it's one that I feel like people kind of have un they U.S uh I think the U.S public has given it less weight than the world's public has given it you know if you go to China or Europe Snowden plays a much more prominent role in their understanding of the United States than it does I think in the United States that all being said mm-hmm. uh, we also don't want to get you know just be like well, uh, we're being monitored every second and everything, you know, it's like a, a world of conspiracy because that's not really, I world mean,
0: world. we are being monitored, but we're being monitored by like Google and Apple and exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> um, so I guess
0: um, because it's been hard for me to understand exactly why the United States at this point is in such a, why the relationship between the United States and China is at such a, it seems like a very a low point in my life and your book, it was really helpful in, in terms of thinking about this this conflict. But maybe you could talk about the importance of of chips and semiconductors and what role they play both in this underground empire and also in the conflict between the United States and China.
1: Sure. I mean I think one of the um one of the main takeaways of our book is that things like technology or um, global companies That they're not just about money. I think, like I was, uh, this is not about China, this is about Europe, but I was in Europe. I lived in Berlin last year. And a a lot of Germans were like, well, why would Russia, why would they stop selling their gas to Europe, you know, to put the squeeze on Europe during the winter last year? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, they were like, that's not rational. Putin's not rational. And you're like, well, because he has other interests he needs to stay in power and if he loses this war he could be killed you know what i mean like that's the end game for him cuz he'll do anything to stay in power and these economic tools are not just about money and so that is what i think has now happened in the us china relationship is that both sides are realizing that that game that they were playing, which th- there was this word constructive engagement, it was the idea that we would just trade and it would transform China, they would become a democracy, and that through you know like economic interaction, they'd become more like us. That's, that didn't happen. And also these economic activities, they can create vulnerabilities. And we know that from the Russia oil sanctions, the gas sanctions, we know it because of COVID. You know, it was like, we couldn't get toilet paper all of a sudden. So there are these shocks that wake us up and say, these economic interactions, they create vulnerabilities. And these technologies, which the United States has used, like in Snowden, to surveil other people, you know, the Chinese companies are developing those. And so the US government is very worried that basically what we were doing to them with Snowden, now they'll do to us. Yeah. Yeah their companies. And so that's there's been this ongoing campaign by the US government to undermine a company called Huawei because they are going to make the next generation of the internet and the US government is very concerned that that will create security uh vulnerabilities for the US and its allies. Okay,
0: and and so then what's the way out?
1: Well, you know, like I think there are two paths and the the U.S. government right now has been using uh, export controls. They're trying to limit the kind of sale of advanced semiconductors to mm. China to prevent them from dominating these sectors. And Henry and I, I mean, our argument is basically all these things, these tools of coercion, we just have to be careful with, about using them. It's not that we can't use them, but we have to make sure that we don't just, it doesn't become our first response when there might be another solution that could work equally well, um, and in that case of Huawei, you know there are companies that make a competitive product, uh, Nokia and Ericsson, they're European companies, and you know in my mind it would be better for us to buy those products, you know, and say, okay, let's do a joint purchasing program for NATO, for the Western alliance, and we're going to buy these products and subsidize them, and, and hopefully the companies would give us a cheaper price. In my mind, that's less provocative than just undermining this company uh, over and over and saying, you know, you, you basically can't sell this product globally. So I think there is there are real concerns about letting a company like Huawei provide the system. But the way we could address it could be a less provocative one. Ch- China says all the time, we're not going to buy your stuff. So you know, I think if we just said to them, well, we're going to buy Nokia and Ericsson. What's the problem? I think the, the bigger problem is when we say Huawei cannot sell anywhere in the globe, and we're going to use our tools uh, to undermine it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess my larger question is from at least from the Chinese perspective, why shouldn't they why shouldn't they be in the game of making um or building the, the next version of the internet? It, it seems to me that they're gonna do it whether we like that or not. Is there a way? to live, to coexist peacefully and have us both be producing these new technologies?
1: So, I mean, I think um, on the one hand, the Chinese say all the time, we're not going to let you do stuff in our market. And we're not going to, we don't like the things that you do. And mm-hmm. we're going to punish people who we don't like if they do things. So Australia, um, Norway, lithuania all of these countries have found themselves on the edge of china's coercive bite and so i don't think we should just think like oh china's just a recipient of this stuff and they don't do these things as well uh-huh. they have different tools they they don't have these networks and global companies they just use access to their market so you know Lithu- lithuania they opened a, an office for taiwan the the uh, and china thinks considers taiwan to be part of its territory and so then all of a sudden china basically ended trade with lithuania it, those kinds of actions they signal that china has its own ambitions and own interests and so we shouldn't just say they're they're just out for money too and they you know they just want peace and prosperity all the time you know they have they're, they're willing to um get in this game yeah at the same time what i would say is like there are not it, the, it's not that the whole Global economy is a minefield. You know, there are these certain areas where there are systems that could be dangerous. And I think it's perfectly in our right to say we're not going to sell you the next generation of AI chips because you're going to use those to war game a, a war to take over Taiwan. Mm-hmm. China wouldn't sell us their leading edge weapon systems. I mean, it's it just it we were in this silly world where we just thought like, Oh, it's all about money and just about money, and there's no vulnerability or power involved. So I think we're we're recalibrating. Mm-hmm. But the book, Henry and I try to say, unless we clearly articulate what's dangerous and what's not, everything will become dangerous and will lead into this kind of slippery slope where globalization and the world economy will be put at risk. And so it's really important to have a like a, a just a, a clear conversation with ourselves, but also with the Chinese. And we say, you know what? these are things that we don't want to trade with you these are all these other areas that are fine and and trying to be open about that instead of just reactive if we're just in a crisis mode then it's likely that what we thought was the uh kind of the ceiling of these types of economic coercion will become the floor and that it'll just ratchet up in a kind of escalation